This October, the Cinepunks Podcast Group invites you to our annual celebration of all things spooky. Cinewin. From October 1st to October 31st, Cinebox.com is your home for Halloween scares and fall phobias. New writing, special podcast episodes, Patreon exclusive content, all to make you feel seasonally creepy. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Evil Eye, a podcast about goth movies. I am your co-host, Robert Scavarla. And I am your co-host, Sam Deegan. And today, 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 we are talking about our favorite subject. Vincent Price. Because we are doing an entire month of Vincent Price movies. And we are going to be starting off with one of our favorites, because obviously it's the first one we picked. House of Usher from 1960. So this presents a bit of a problem for us because our podcast is about doing goth movies and music. And unfortunately, in 1960, there really wasn't goth music. And to be fair, this isn't technically a goth movie. It's yes, a it is. It's a gothic movie. How dare you? It's influenced by the literary gothic. But goth was not a thing in 1960. So saying this is or isn't a goth movie is being a little... It doesn't really make sense. But this is our podcast and we can do whatever we want, so... So we're covering House of Usher from 1960 is what we're doing. <laughs> well, and I think, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about, Roderick Usher is goth as fuck. And... I mean, he yeah. is a very... I don't know if I'd call him a goth character, but he is He's certainly super goth. like... Okay, we'll go with that, sure. <laughs> So to begin, for those of you who are not aware, this is a property based on um, a story by one of the most famous writers of all time. One of the most goth writers of all time. A man who literally went insane the last three days of his life and no one knows why, how, or what happened. That's goth as fuck. We are talking about... Edgar Allan Poe. Who is an interesting figure because his life was... We all think of him today as a really cool guy. But he had a very depressing life. So uh, horribly sad. So horribly sad. Uh, lived in poverty for most of his life because he was a writer. And as we all know, writers don't make money. No, I mean... Some of them some do. Some of them do. The really, like the really famous like, ones. Like five famous. of them have. Yeah. You make some money. Not like... <laughs> I mean, I'm not living in poverty, but... He had uh, a tough life in part because of circumstances around his profession his own personal kinks or weirdness with like falling in love with his cousin. Yeah, that was maybe a little misguided. And I, he may I have definitely had other think... like health issues tied into his life as well. Sure. And and I think if there was a writer today who, you know, married their fifteen year old cousin, they that person would just be canceled flat out. But there Oh, are we gonna do an episode on cancel culture now? No, we're not, because it's dumb and I I don't want to actually acknowledge it. But I think it's impossible to cancel Edgar Allan Poe because life already did that. Yeah, that's pretty much true. In more ways than one, because his life, if you read anything about him, his life sucked. He's a, he was a fantastic writer 
who was popular in his own era, but like he wasn't popular to the extent that he is today, the way that we know him. Sure. And I think he also, and, and we can talk about this more as we go along, but I think he also was someone who didn't really gain legitimacy until the French kind of right. took hold of just this idea of him as a genius and not somebody who was writing these sort of schlock dime stories well and part of that was um the people who uh the biographers and the people who were writing about him is in his own era at least one of them if i remember right kind of thought poorly of him yeah they all sort of they they all kind of thought of him as this grumpy literary critic who also wrote his own fiction and was just this kind of alcoholic layabout degenerate which was accurate it's not wrong <laughs> he was definitely a fan of opium as were many others in that era yeah he was far from uh, the only but person. even other writers in that era were also critical i remember uh, reading up on this um, washington irvin irving was critical of yeah. they were friends and they had correspondence with each other as writers in that era did but he was definitely critical of house of usher the short story saying it was too formulaic and relied on tropes that Poe had already developed in Lygia and um, other writing he had done previously. Sure. And I think something that you have to acknowledge is that a lot of the fiction writers from that time made the majority of their money from writing literary criticism. So people, people like Coleridge, certainly, uh, and they were a small community of very strange men who, who were all very catty. Yes, who loved to take, like, to sort of take each other down a few pegs as often as they could. If you're a writer and a critic, you're going to attack your friends just because it's what you do. Right? Yeah, so it's like a sort of love-hate thing. And if you read, so the uh, Library of America has put out these really wonderful editions of Poe's complete work. And in there, you can read some of his letters and some of his criticism. And he is so fucking bitchy. It's just wonderful. A man who wrote multiple stories about being encased in buildings or trapped in a closed location. It doesn't seem like he has any kind of weird phobias at all no. about social interaction or agoraphobia no. or anything. None. And no issues with family whatsoever, as we'll see when we talk about the House of Usher plot. <laughs> I, I, I wonder what could be going on there. <laughs> <laughs> so the movie House of Usher, um, it went under different titles depending on where it was released. Some places it was billed as the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, in the, in the um, United in the Kingdom. Story. Um, and in America, it was billed as House of Usher. It is a gothic horror film, which when it came out was unusual because it was made by Roger Corman, who was yes. with American International Pictures, and he was not known for this style of movie. No, and it's interesting because looking back at it sort of in hindsight, you know, there's this great whole Roger Corman, Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe cycle, which we can get into as we go along, but... Really, House of Usher was created as a response to Hammer's gothic films that they started to produce in 1957 with things like Dracula and, and Frankenstein. Murders in the Remorse? Was that, had that come out yet? I don't think so. Okay. But. I'm not the biggest, like, Hammerhead. I mean, they weren't as interested. So I, I think really what Hammer did, and I once said this. Are we going to make some angry 
are we going to make some men angry on the internet right now because yeah. we're talking about Hammer? Yeah, here we go. Uh, Shout out to many of the other women who write about Hammer, like very intelligently and unfortunately have to deal with assholes. Yeah, the Hammer fans are something else. Uh, I once suggested that what Hammer were doing was in the late 50s was basically taking the same properties that Universal used in the 30s and pretty much doing their own spin on that and this guy lost his mind at me like of course but it's like if you look at the films they released in the order in which they released them it exactly mimics what universal was doing so i i don't You're a woman with an opinion though and on the internet that's a problem that's a problem in a lot of places but especially I mean, it can on be a the problem internet here sometimes because <laughs> i always have to be right god damn it i'm a man well, most of the time. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think it was no, it's absolutely a response to the Hammer films. Sure. You can see in the um, production design, uh, the use of color, which up to that point, I believe Corman had only shot in black and white. And it's not that he was directly mimicking the films, but he was clearly taking inspiration from them. Yeah. And I think it was inevitable that AIP would try to do something like that or find a director interested in doing something like that because they really were all over the horror market in the U.S. and they're responsible actually for distributing a lot of really beloved European horror films. I mean, they put out pretty much all of Baba's films here, but with different names and they were recut and they had different scores, which is something we could talk about on a Baba episode. But so it, it's really no surprise to me that they said, oh, OK, you know, there's a studio in England doing this and these movies are really successful. So why don't we do it, too? And to get off on a good foot, they decided they were going to use not only Roger Corman, who was somewhat well-known for doing B-movies in that era, but also Richard Matheson to write the script. Yes, I love Richard Matheson. And the director of photography, Floyd Crosby, who ended up doing... Is so this amazing. The success of this movie, when it came out, it was wildly successful for AIP. Mm-hmm. And it launched a series of Poe-inspired adaptations that yeah. Corman... Matheson and Crosby all collaborated on to some extent. They did bring other and people Price in as well. And out. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Price was part of the appeal. Sure. And I mean, he is the appeal. That's why we're doing it. <laughs> yeah, let's be real. Uh, I, one of the things that I love so much, though, about the fact that they started with Poe is it feels like a very uniquely American response to what is often seen as a British genre because Gothic literature did start in England with, with people like Horace Walpole. But I just really love that the first sort of big wave of American Gothic films, American Gothic horror films was based on the work of an American writer. I just think it's, it's kind of nice how they tie that. USA. (laughs) USA. And that's no, I mean, the last Paul, time like, I'll ever be patriotic on the show. So when you think of American horror literature, especially prior to the 1970s and someone like the with the emergence of Stephen King, Poe is one of the first probably two or three names that pops up. Well, sure. Even today, I think if you ask people, name a famous horror writer, Stephen King will still be one, which is whatever. Nothing against King. I'm just not a fan. Um, but Poe will always be one of the ones who tops the list. Yeah. And speaking of writers, there would be no Stephen King without Richard Matheson, who wrote this script. I mean, Matheson well, is 
Well, we'll have to do a more sort of in-depth Matheson episode at some point because he... We I could think, do another Price movie, Last Man on Earth. Which is wonderful. Not really got, though, so... Well... Vampires. Mm, well, I yeah, guess they're vampires. Yeah. You know what? They are vampires, and I definitely said on an earlier episode that if a movie has vampires in it, it's automatically goth. But as we are wont to do, we are getting ahead of ourselves. We are. Because we have something we have to do before we jump into this. And what is that? It's talk about the rules for being goth. What are the rules, Sam? Rule number one is to embrace the darkness. We'll see if that happens. Rule number two is to kill your fear. Maybe. And rule number three is to live for death, which this movie certainly does. And all the characters do. So... (laughs) This is an interesting movie because it was unusual both in its era and today it's very slow and it's focused more on mood than scares. There isn't really gore in this movie. I remember looking over some reviews both from the era and today and I saw the word gore used for some reason like people saying there was gore but if you watch it there really isn't. Well there's one scene of her in this sort of nightmare sequence where... So we're talking about Madeline Usher. Yes. Sister of roderick Roderick usher and roderick is played by vincent price um who is madeline played by madeline is played by myrna fahey but i feel like poor myrna basically was kind of riffing on this type that would become dominated by barbara Steele. You can definitely see comparisons to black sunday in this yeah well actually that's something that we should quickly talk about is 1960 is a hugely pivotal year for modern horror cinema. It saw the release of all these films that basically changed the genre in one year. And if you do want to talk about like gore in some sense, Black Sunday would be a movie that had, it wasn't explicitly gory the way we know it, but a woman getting a metal mask rammed into her face. Nailed to her face. Yeah, that was a, a lot, but So there's Baba's Black Sunday, which came out that year. There's Hitchcock with Psycho, which, you know, terrorized. Yeah, terrorized everyone in the United States. The modern serial killer movie can be traced back to Psycho. Well, and also Peeping Tom by Michael Powell, which came out in the same year and is arguably more traumatizing than Psycho. That movie is still disturbing. It's amazing. Um, I mean, you also have... Flies under the radar, though. It does, and... It makes me sad because I love Psycho and I love Hitchcock, but I think Peeping Tom, from a technical standpoint, is the superior film. And if right. you're arguing serial killer films, it also goes further with the subject matter in a way where certain scenes are still kind of shocking well, today. It definitely. Um, it was one of the first movies, if not the first, to use the perspective of the killer, mm-hmm. which you see in uh, Bob Clark's black christmas and then in john carpenter's halloween and carpenter carpenter tends to get credit for establishing that even though people like um well i mean fritz long did it in 1931 with m right but pretty much everyone is riding on his coattails in the context of horror like it tends to get pushed into like carpenter did this and it's not that he didn't do it it's just people had done it before him decades before him in fact but it's also 1960 is uh, John Llewellyn Moxie's City of the Dead, which I first heard about under the unfortunate title of Horror Hotel. Uh, really? Yeah. It's a great movie and you can find it almost anywhere because it's public domain. Unfortunately, that also means many of the versions you find are not the best. 
Yeah, and it's a really... The version on Amazon Prime definitely doesn't look good. Well, it, it's such a shame because it's this really strange film that's... And we'll have to talk about it because I think it counts as a goth movie. It's definitely a moody movie in the vein of what we're talking about right now, but different in that it's black and white and it's focused more explicitly on witchcraft where... Yeah, it's sort of a anything... satanic witchcraft movie at a time when there weren't a lot of those. Yeah, and there isn't anything overtly like occultish or witchy in um usher yeah there's hints of these things happening in the background but everything kind of happens through suggestion whereas city of the dead it's more it's upfront. pretty overt yeah but so you have this one great year with all of these kind of really revolutionary movies and i think house of usher definitely deserves to be included in that conversation because it changed american horror i think especially in the sense that studios and directors were more inclined to explore gothic horror especially sort of distinctly american gothic horror and one of the things that's interesting about this is the set design which is absolutely gorgeous oh, it's so good i mean even the opening title sequence where and this is something that corman would play with in like all of the post cycle movies were because he would reuse sets over and over from yeah. the, from this in the other movie. Well, but there's this great title sequence where all of the sort of main cast names are introduced and there's just this sort of like colored fog or colored smoke. And I mean, it so, feels like it's there for a lot of the movie. You just see yeah. that billowing smoke is all over the movie, which is wonderful. Well, and it's funny because I think that this must have had an influence on Baba because even though Baba does come out with Black Sunday in 1960, it's a black and white film. And Corman's use of color here, it feels a lot like a later color Baba film. Just like the atmosphere and the sort of the way that they're sort of different colored lights that oh, show up that. in like the title sequence and the, the insane dream sequence that Which we see later on. Definitely something I want to talk about as we get into the movie. But as it begins, we see a man on horseback riding in. This man is named Winthrop. Poor, which is poor Mark Damon. Different from Poe's story where we have an unnamed friend of Roderick coming to town. Whereas here, Winthrop is the um, beau, paramour, Love interest of, of Madeline. Madeline. And we're never quite clear how they met because when he gets into the house, we find out that both Roderick and Madeline pretty much never leave. Well, you get the sense that she was in Boston for school and that's where they met and she had to return home because he says, you know, when, when we were together in Boston, you were so different and you weren't like this and you have to come back, leave here and come back to Boston with me. I'll give Matheson credit there. That makes some sense. Well, I think... Matheson does as much as he can to change very little of the story and only change it when it makes sense to like he to clearly things to make it yeah. like longer because if you watch the other Poe adaptations that Corman and Price do they can get a little weird <laughs> you have like yeah vincent price and other characters throwing spells at each other and doing uh, all kinds of yeah crazy so shit. maybe we should talk about those quickly to sure. get to get it out of the way so it's sort of... it. Well, why don't we say what they are first? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. after this, they did Pit in the Pendulum. Well, and so something I feel like we have to acknowledge is, in a sense, the Corman Price post-cycle became a victim of its own success in that the studio was really enthusiastic about being able 
to market these Poe films. And so they pretty much said to Roger Corman and Richard Matheson, you know, you're going to have to take some Poe stories and turn them into feature length films, which in the case of some things made perfect sense and was very easy, like with House of Usher and Pit and the Pendulum, which is the following year. But then you get something like Haunted <laughs> Palace, which isn't even uh, Lovecraft. Uh, uh, it is a Lovecraft ad- ad- adaptation with a Poe title added on to it. Yeah. And I mean... You get some strange decisions in what they choose to make as well. Well, they also... So there's a third movie. So technically, the Corman Price Poe movies, there are seven of them. But there is a third one called The Premature Burial, which came out in 62, that doesn't have Vincent Price, but has Ray Milland instead and follows the story pretty closely. And then I don't know what happened after The Premature Burial, but then it just takes a strange turn. They started doing almost... I mean, the comedic elements start creeping into it. Yeah. A lot of stuff doesn't make sense. Well, so then then they also, they do get probably my favorite adaptation, which is Mask of the Red Death. Yeah, which that is, I think, goes sort of back to House of Usher in the sense that it it takes its time telling a story. It's very atmospheric. Uh, The fourth one is Tales of Terror from 62, which is an anthology that, like you were saying, includes like a surprising amount of humor that kind of doesn't fit with the rest of the movies. Not really. And then you have the Raven from 1963, which it's sort of like someone said to Richard Matheson, here's a giant pile of cocaine and a copy of the poem, the Raven make a feature length (laughs) film. Best of luck to you. Well, so one (laughs) of the things that's tough is that frequently, I mean, they're, they're adapting Poe short stories. So they have to lengthen or these poems out. in the or case poems. of the Raven. Yeah. So how do you do that? So like in Mask of the Red Death, they add things like um, Hop Frog, which and is other... I love Hop Frog so much. It's great to see it in there. So they have to find ways to throw other things in there or lengthen it. So when you get something like Usher, you get weird dream sequences. You get um, the scene in the crypt. You get all of these things where like they're not present in the original story or they drop things. Yeah, because like the, the story whole... is short. So one of the things that I find interesting is to update it for the era. It's a period piece, but it drops all of the stuff with the knight and the dragon that's in the original short. Yeah, they're... So it's weird what Matheson adds to it and what he subtracts to make it work for the era in which it was made. Yeah, and I, I do think that some of them are really on the nose in terms of adapting Poe, like totally agree mask of the red death. And also the last one, tomb of Lygia, which is it's wonderful. It's so perfect. Someone but, already suggested we do that as uh, our Halloween episode, which I mean, the way Vincent price dresses we'll in that see. movie is goth as fuck. The way he dresses in all of these, except for the Raven where they're magicians and it makes, I love the Raven and I'm not trying to talk shit, but it makes no sense. So one of the things that um, I liked about this movie is when you're first presented with the image of Vincent Price, his hair is dyed blonde, but it looks like it's white almost just because of how blonde it is. And that's not the image you ever have of Vincent Price. You think of him as, you know, the slick back hair, the mustache and all of that. Whereas here, he's totally clean shaven. Clean shaven, which clean shaven. I don't, I'm like, why? Rick why Flair, is that blonde hair. <laughs> I almost wanted to say he was a silver fox, but he's not quite in this movie because it's like almost white bordering well, on white. So he has for a while, Andrew Eldritch dyed his hair blonde and it's like the same blonde color. Ugh. 
that I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry neither to remind those, you of that. <laughs> neither of those two should ever be blonde. Um, no. I like Price in this movie, but the blonde hair does not work for him. <laughs> well, I think it adds to the over. Like, I don't know why that particular decision was made, but it definitely adds to the overall weirdness. Absolutely. But his clothes in that, I mean, the the set design, the furnishings of the house, and his clothes in particular are so amazingly goth. Well, so the set design um, and his clothes, they highlight red a lot. Um, everything you see Price wearing is typically some shade of red to get across the fact that he is a part of this house. Well, Whereas, with like random scenes where he's dressed in all black that feel extra ominous because it's so jarring. But they contrast that with Winthrop, who is almost always in blue to stand out. And the use of color in this movie, we keep talking about it, but it's amazing. And I think partially I like to talk about it because so much of what we see today is the exact opposite of that. This era was all about bright, colorful horror movies, hammer horror films. So beautifully stylized. Baba. Whereas today we get the, everything's color corrected to look like bluish so that it looks grimy and dark and it looks so many movies today all look the same. Whereas in that era up through, I would say probably the mid to late seventies, mm-hmm. you still got, you know, beautiful technicolor movies. Yeah. And I, I think in some way, part of what I dislike so much about modern horror is that it just, it lacks style. Well, I don't think it necessarily lacks style. I think part of the problem is, I was thinking about this when I was watching this movie because you, you're taken aback when you first see everything, the set design, the dressing, the costumes, because so much of everything today doesn't feel planned the way the movie does. So much of, even on the low budget end of things, everyone's technically proficient now, even in low budget films, so everything kind of looks the same. Everyone does the same quick cutting editing that they learned in the 80s from MTV. I know, I hate it. They do the same color correcting so everything looks the same. I hate it. Everything is like proficient, but it's not, it doesn't stand out because of that. No one goes above and beyond. In the films that do, um, I recently saw Peter Strickland's In Fabric, which I know you love. I love Peter Strickland in general. We'll have to do one of his films. stands out about the movie immediately is the use of color, where again, you have reds, yellows, greens, they pop. And And it's supposed to be for that era, like to make it, totally appropriate for the late 70s early 80s or whenever it's set but well they also serve a narrative purpose and right so that's what frustrates me so much is you know these gothic horror films from the 60s a lot of the time the use of visual style serves a narrative purpose whereas today you throw some lighting filters on stuff to make it look 80s yeah or to try to make it look naturalistic in some sort of hollywood way that doesn't look naturalistic well and that's one of my things everyone kind of does all the same things everyone throws um orange and um green lighting gels on things Mm -hmm. to make them kind of look like 80s style tragic so everything kind of has the same feel even when people try to dress the setup and you know add a production value to something they'll throw you know something like that out there but all of the movies look the same compared to that era where you know, DPs were doing things to make these movies stand out, even if they're all touching on thematically similar material or visually similar material, they all stand out. Yeah, I mean, I think if you watch, you know, Curse of Frankenstein from 58, which is a Hammer film, 
back to back with House of Usher. Yes, it's obvious that they're both supposed to be gothic horror period pieces, but they look so different. Right. Like you could never watch them back to back and think, oh, that must be the same director. Whereas today you watch a Blumhouse film from 2019 and it feels like a Platinum Dunes film from 2004, both in the way the story unfolds and in the look of the film, which is weird to me because if you think of like that 15 year gap now, 15 years from 1960 to 1975 was like decades yeah. in the way film operated. So something like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which came out the year earlier, it's hard to imagine that, that was only a 15-year gap compared to like House oh, of Wax totally. to the House of Wax remake to something that came out this year from like Blumhouse or it feels something like, recent. It feels like nothing has changed in a way. Because, I mean, if After you the think... After the 90s, like film stopped. Stopped. In, in some sense. That's not true of everything. There are still people who are doing visually arresting movies or making things that are interesting. It just feels like it's much harder to find than it would have it's been. So in much era. harder to find. But that's one of the things that makes this film stand out. Um, we're talking about the sets because it's beautiful set design. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's almost distracting. The first time you watch the film, you don't really care about the. Pl I mean, even when I watched it for the millionth time to talk about it for this episode, you don't really care about the plot because the atmosphere is just so amazing. Well, and to be fair, there isn't really a lot of plot happening in the movie. They're just kind of... So when Winthrop shows up, he talks to um, Roderick and Bristol, the butler, and Madeline well, Bristol kind of, is also not in the story. No. So they, they make a lot of changes. So in the story, um, the most obvious change is that Roderick and Madeline are twins, whereas... No one looks like Vincent Price, so you can't really have Vincent Price's twin. Um, that's one of the obvious ones, and Winthrop having a name and not being Roderick's friend. So there's obvious changes which are done for the sake of the story. Yeah, and but I think they all. There's a lot of story because Matheson did, didn't have a lot to work with. Well, I think the changes make sense. And in the original story, you know, having his friend show up and just inquire Narrate. about his health is a, a different level of motivation than having some guy who's desperately in love show up and try to rescue his fiance. Like the protagonist, Poe was not very friendly to a lot of his protagonists who are <laughs> by and large, either insane, like hypochondriacs. Yeah. Or... Insane hypochondriacs. People like the unreliable narrator is, is a common feature of his stories, but they're often just really unlikable. And sometimes that can be a positive thing like the Telltale Heart where you're sucked in because he's unlikable but compelling. Whereas in this story and also in the film, Winthrop is just so milquetoast. It's Which like, is interesting because Price is... He's not evil, but he's definitely tortured in a way that he's, he's kind of an anti-hero to some extent. Yes, definitely. I mean, if you haven't read the story and you somehow don't know the plot if of this film... If you haven't read the story, did you fucking go to high school? <laughs> like, that's one of the stories everybody has to read. And if, you're, if you've never read the story, why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah. Shut it off right now. It's like 20 pages. Read it. Or maybe just read some Poe in general, because tis the season. It is. But the sort of general 
important concept of the story that also translates to the film is the idea that the house itself is evil and is alive. And I think that's something that really influenced haunted house fiction and cinema because there's this sort of idea that the twins are connected to the house and their fate sort of hinges on what happens to it. And it to them, like the things yes. that happen to them ultimately influence the house as well. Which isn't... It's as if they all have one soul or something like that. Yeah, which there's this sense... I mean, and this is definitely borrowed from Gothic literature, this sense that sort of evil is something that seeps into generations of a family. Nature and, versus nurture. Yeah, and I mean, probably my favorite quote from the whole uh, from the whole movie is... Mere passage from the flesh cannot undo centuries of evil. And you get the... There's so much amazing dialogue. That is one of the things I wanted to highlight. My favorite line in the movie, which is, the history of... Uh, uh, the history of the House of Usher is that of savage degradations. Just the way, like, dialogue unfolds. And all of it comes from Vincent Price. No one else delivers dialogue quite like him in this movie, and he gets all the best uh, lines because of that. Or no one else delivers dialogue quite like him in cinema, period. True. <laughs> and that's actually something I wanted to touch on, because one of the things that always gets me is when people talk about Price, they talk about him as being a camp actor. He's always known as being campy. And people, some people take it in the way that they think he was never a good actor. Which makes me so angry. Same. Flames. Um, specifically Flames because on the side of, of my face. Um, many movies he can go from... Like The Tingler? Well, okay, so The Tingler's one, I would probably say, is a little campy. But you have movies like this and, hold on, um, Fives, which, sorry, not this one so much. Fives, I can see where people might say he's campy. Like, he's playing it up in that movie, Madhouse. Madhouse and oh, Theater sure. of Blood specifically rely on like the idea of Vincent Price as a camp actor for the movie to make sense. And we're going to do an episode talking about both of those because they're the fucking best. Right. But you get movies like this where he's tortured and conflicted. He's not an outright villain, but he's a bad person. And you can see that he was a good actor. Or you get movies oh, like yeah, Witchfinder General and Mask of the Red Death where he is an outright villain. And he's, he's glorious. He's so good. And I mean, even... He's incredible in some film noir movies he was in, like like Which Lara. No he's one ever great really knows in... because people only talk about the horror. Yeah, and like While the City Sleeps, this really amazing Fritz Long serial killer film from the, I want to say mid-50s. He, he's great in them. And he's in, before this, in like largely throughout the 50s, kind of late 40s, He's in all these like gothic romances and thrillers that people don't seem to pay much attention to. And he gives incredible performances in them. And he gives one in this movie. He, he plays. Sure does. So, as I said, he's not an outright villain in the movie. And he isn't really technically a villain in the story. Which is what makes him so goth. Right. He's tormented and misunderstood. Lots of sexual torment. Hunted, despised. Is implied <laughs> because neither Poe nor Corman could really bring up the possibility of what we're all thinking when we watch this movie that he's totally banging his sister yes or trying to that it may have <laughs> happened that it will happen that it continues to happen the mood in this movie is such that the actress and price don't have a lot of chemistry on screen but it's partially because the actress isn't really given a lot to work with she's either screaming yeah. or she's kind of like 
sleepwalking. Oh my God, save me. Well, she also, it's interesting because in the story, they're presented as being almost psychically linked, the two twins. But she also doesn't really appear much in the story. Yeah, and she doesn't really appear too much in the film either, and almost never at the same time as Vincent Price. So they could be the same person. That's a whole different version of the story. <laughs> Vincent Price is fucking himself. Well, I mean, wouldn't you if you were Vincent Price? Probably. <laughs> but getting back to the incest, because that's what we all want to talk about. That's true. Um, it w- The way it's played in the movie is interesting because it's clear that, like, the character Roderick, he's definitely, like, creeping on his sister fairly frequently. Yeah, he's extremely controlling and basically sort of tries to dictate when she can sleep, what she can eat, how much bright light she's exposed to. He's definitely not a fan of Winthrop being there at all. No. And you do have to give her a little bit of credit because she puts her foot down and goes against what her brother wants and exerts her own will. But she is, I think, every bit as goth as Roderick is. I mean, she does shit like every night sleepwalks down to the family crypt where she just spends the rest of the night sleeping in some sort of like catatonic state. But why wouldn't you if you were living in a house like that? You yeah, know, a the house is New amazing. Mansion. Yeah, I I want to move into that house. So that's another thing that's changed from the story. That happens in the story, but ultimately the fate that befalls Roderick and Madeline is slightly different from the story. And I don't feel like we're spoiling things to jump to the end because no, you kind of jump around in this movie. you've had, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 years to see the film. Plus <laughs> how, like over 100 to have read the story. Yeah. So the ending of the movie, again, is something that's changed. In the story, the house collapses into uh, kind of like, like a lake. Yeah, it like cracks so, it kind of folds in on itself, you know? Like yeah. that Simpsons Treehouse of Horror where the haunted house just kind of like disappears. Disintegrates. Into yeah, that's basically what happens. But it plays into the idea that something about their relationship influences what happens to the house itself. That the physical state of the house is tied to their physical beings. Whereas in the store, in the movie, it just burns down. Which makes more sense. I mean, I unless guess. there's... Well, it's it's more plausible. I mean, it's also Metzengerstein's ending, which is another story that I think gets very, very little attention and has a similar theme of this kind of incestuous family relationship where... What's with all those white people and incest? If you just look at Poe alone, there's plenty of it. I mean, I mean, in his real life, but I, I was referring more specifically to his fiction. True. <laughs> and it's something that pops up in other stories of that era, Gothic literature. There's a tradition of that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think Gothic literature is often very concerned with families and bloodlines. Yeah. The sort of inheritances that. people take from their parents. And there's this idea of kind of corruption or miasma that generational guilt yeah that somehow has to be purged and in this case the only way to purge it is for them to die with this house and they do so and, that's and how <laughs> well so yeah in the story they kind of fall into this lake that was under the house or whatever it really is a pit 
Yeah. Um, and in the movie, they burn down with the house. Well, there's also this, you know, Poe's favorite theme of the fear of being buried alive, which shows up again in the pit and the pendulum. And basically Madeline dies of a heart attack. So she has catalepsy, yes. which is what technically she, that's what gets her buried. But Roderick does it on purpose because he never wants her to leave. Which is so fucked up when you realize what's going on. Well, you know, if your sister's all you got in the world and that's the one relationship that's going to get you by, I'm not saying he should have done it. You're just, just saying, saying it makes a certain amount of sense. makes a certain amount of sense in his like deranged mind. So now I'm canceled. <laughs> so this actually is an episode about cancel culture. About how everyone is canceled, including both of us. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it just, I feel like it does some really interesting things with that trope, though, where there's this great sort of dream sequence. And this is what I mentioned earlier, where if you could say that there's any gore in this film, there's a moment where you see that Madeline is alive and she's kind of like covered in blood and is trying to claw her way out and right. she looks pretty horrifying so the dream sequence is interesting because of the way it's shot it uses different color filters it's gorgeous it jumps between so the colors i remember are i think green a lot and purple. of blue green blue and purple like various shades of that one of the things i find interesting about the dream sequence is it feels like a precursor to what would happen later in the 60s with counterculture films specifically about lsd where you yes. have a trip sequence. And this feels like that because of its use of color filters, non-sequential images. And the music, the, the less back... Oh, yeah, we haven't talked yeah. about the less Baxter score yet, which Please, go ahead. is so incredible. And, you know, he worked with Corman a lot. I think, I want to say he scored all of the films in the Poe cycle. Most and of the people who worked on Usher went on to work on other Poe films. And not yeah. necessarily the people in front of the camera. It's most of, like, the crew behind Sure. And I think there you really th this film would not be the same without that score. And I think a couple of years ago, it actually had a proper CD slash record release. And it's there's so many highly, highly recommended. I'm not surprised. Yeah. So like gloomy and atmospheric. And it's I mean, just everything, it's perfect. Like, if you couldn't describe this movie, gloomy and atmospheric are the words to use. Also red velvet. Oh, his outfit. Yes, he wears this. It's like my favorite thing. He wears this red velvet dressing gown for like the first half of the movie. And because he's so tall and is shot to appear. I mean, he's so in, in life, he was 6'4 or maybe 6'3 and is shot to appear in a lot of his films, but definitely this one as well, to appear taller and more menacing. sort of menacing. But when he's wearing nothing but red velvet, he just looks like it's frightening. Well, so the <laughs> idea that he's shot to be menacing is interesting because his character in both the story and the book, he's a hypochondriac. So the sickness, the sickness that he has in both the story and the movie, it's never clear if he actually is sick or if he believes he is sick because of the family inheritance with the way they have all had various issues, maladies. Madeline has catalepsy, which we find out later. Yeah. So Price, he the way he's portrayed in the film is interesting because of the contradictions in the character. He is so much taller and he's shot to look taller, but frequently he's sitting down or he's lazing about. He's meant to look frail. Frail. 
So he's kind of a tall, bony guy in the movie, which is weird that they would do both of those things. I kind of like it, though, because it makes it seem like he's a big faker. Right. And is just a fucking nut job. But that's one of those things you don't know if he's actually sick or if he just believes it. So that's one of the things that I think makes both the story and the movie interesting. And you can kind of see the various, like, the psychosis kind of in a physical form, the way he portrays it. Yeah, if there's any sort of unintentional comedy, it's in the moments when Roderick kind of gaslights. Yeah, he kind of gaslights Winthrop when Winthrop tries to argue with him. So (laughs) I'm going to start doing this from now on because it's the best thing ever. Um, What Roderick explains is that he has sort of an extreme sensitivity. He has to have bland food he can't have bright lights everything has to be quiet but he the has... best scene is the beginning when uh, bristol makes uh winthrop take off his boots yeah because, because roderick will hear his boots and be disturbed by it and so any but if you pay attention <laughs> in the rest of the movie winthrop is wearing his boots in other scenes oh yes yeah. so it's almost like winthrop is like fuck you roderick he tries but it basically anytime Winthrop tries to argue with Roderick, Roderick's nope. extremely passive aggressive and perfect way of getting around it is just like it's causing him physical pain. You're being too loud. Please stop shouting at me. The next time anyone tries to get mad at me, that's just what I'm gonna do. Oh, I can't take it anymore. I'm just I'm not too delicate. Well. I have a I'm migraine. too delicate for this conversation. Okay, so that won't work for you specifically because no. you are angry so much of the time <laughs> that no one will believe it. <laughs> well, yeah, You're also that's not tall and imposing like Vincent Price, so you can't no. pull it off where you have like the weird menace, but also just like the frail, oh, I, I can't bear this. Yeah, that's probably true. Ugh. It is a really great tactic to get out of an argument, though. And he uses it a lot in the movie. He uses both it with yeah. uh, Winthrop. And the, so his relationship with Winthrop is very different, obviously, from the way he handles Madeline, where he just kind of was like, do this. And she'll fight back, but ultimately she will do what he wants. And unfortunately, that leads her to her fate. Being buried alive. You should have just alive. listened to your brother. And you could have avoided theme this. in much of Poe's work. And it's interesting the way it's portrayed here because... <laughs> well, before we move too far away from catalepsy, there's a movie that I always kind of loosely considered to be part of the cycle, even though it's not, which is Comedy of Terrors. And... interesting choice well because it's a lot of the same actors from like uh some of the earlier like anthology films so it basically comedy of terrors is what it probably is in my top 10 favorite movies of all time um it's entertaining it's so good uh it's vincent price and peter lore run this funeral home that is owned by an aging Boris Karloff who almost accidentally poisons himself like every five minutes. (laughs) Like he's just doddering and has no idea what's going on. And Vincent Price is a complete scoundrel and scams people. So they really only have one coffin that they just keep reusing. And there's this really hilarious use of catalepsy where this one character that they're trying to scam who is pretty much their landlord and they're supposed to be paying him but have avoided paying him forever he has the same problem where he just suddenly drops dead but really is just asleep (laughs) in in, in like a dead sleep 
And so they bury him and then he wakes up and it's, it is just the best use of that theme, like for comedic ends. Well, I think that feels part of this series because wasn't it like consciously playing off those tropes? It totally was. It was and a response. It, I know reviews in the era for that movie referenced the fact that it's kind of making, it's not making fun. It's like a lighthearted jab at the movies that they were all making at the time. Totally. And it has the same sort of elaborate kind of period set pieces and the same kind of costumes and so right. it, that i think is why in my head i always sort of group it in even though it's not technically it's not officially it's definitely not a paul adaptation then again neither was the haunted palace so yeah that one you always kind of have to wonder how exactly that was shoehorned in because it's the case of charles dexter ward like right. it is a lovecraft story it has Nothing to do with Poe at all. I mean, why not? They're all the same, aren't they? Horror writers before the 1960s. I mean, at least he's another American horror writer, I guess. <laughs> uh, I mean, they did do another Lovecraft adaptation in the 70s, didn't they? Dunwich Horror. Yes, they did. Which is an interesting adaptation of that. Well, it's... I. Dunwich Horror is amazing. Well, no, I like it. We will have to cover that at some point. Dean Stockwell. <laughs> Dean Stockwell. As a cult leader. Is, he is arguably kind of goth. I guess. I mean, <laughs> so if we're talking about Blue Velvet, definitely. Oh, yeah. Um, now you have distracted me into thinking about Dean Stockwell because I just... got to get back to Vincent Price. He's the subject of our month. I so. know, I know. We'll get back there. But there is a really great Quantum Leap episode that is a goth episode <laughs> where Scott Bakula wakes up in a body that he thinks is a vampire. But and it's just a goth. <laughs> he's just goth. Oh, well, in that case. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was so popular that studios AIP and other studios I think really just tried to capitalize on not only this idea of the price Corman post cycle but just price like there's twice told tales which price stars in that adapted Nathaniel Hawthorne stories right there's diary of a madman which I love uh it's one of the more underrated price ones I think that's an adaptation of uh, Guy de Maupassant's story well the 60s is really where price like the horror icon takes off totally yeah and partially House because of wax of, yeah. right so because of House of Wax and this movie that's kind of where price got typecast I, I, I hate to say typecast but that's what happened to him he just sort of ended up, he couldn't get work anywhere else for some reason. Well, I think he manages to work a relentless amount. I mean, his list of credits is just, it seemed like he was always working. I mean, what else was he going to do? Cook? And he, he is a very good cook. I mean, he is, but... I mean, I guess he had a lot of like life he, pursuits he yeah. could have done. He could have cooked... He could have been a fine art dealer, like all the stuff he, that like, he, he was. was no, I know he that's collected. What I'm saying, yeah. yeah, he collected fine art. There's and... a great episode of uh, Johnny Carson in the '70s where he takes. They have like art set up, and Carson has him like judging: is it actually like good art or not? Yeah, and Price's responses are great. Yeah, his any Price Carson interaction is always good. Like the one about how after 20 years of marriage, you know how to bone something. <laughs> so that one specifically is great because he's showing Johnny Carson how to make a fish in um, a washing machine, how to steam a fish. And I'll tell you what you do put it in. Here it is, the dishwasher. 
True. Actually, Truly. absolutely true. Now, I give you my word that an hour before the show started, it's true. we cooked exactly that meal in this dishwasher on the full cycle, mind you, on the full cycle. The water and uh... everything. Yeah, no rinse. No rinse. No, and no soap. But the drying and but all. But everything, the whole bit. Now here it all is. There are our dishes. And they're hot. Now they're hot and we hope they're done. And I'm sure they are done because we've tried it and it was successful. And we'll take a look first at the Why, why do you use a dishwasher? Just to, uh... Because it steams and it heats and fish is one of the few things. You couldn't do, you know, meat or anything well, like that in it. So but the... fish cooks in only a very short time and it really is kind of beautiful. Look, look at how beautiful that is. Now look at that. Huh? That has been done. Yes. It's all hot. Is it? How now? Yeah. Now you leave, leave that in the yes, whole you leave cycle. That. Now, I, if, you, if you go over there, I'm going to bring you a little uh, sample. All right. You want to take the wine with you, Johnny? No, I think I've had enough. Well, why don't you drink it here? Huh? Up. Now, let's see. First, we'll boil a little. Oh, look. Isn't that beautiful? Look at that. Oh. Look at that fish. Come on. Isn't... You bone that well. That's the thing that I don't know how to well, do. Well, that's just something you have to learn how to do. I've been married so many times, I've learned how to bone yeah. anything. <laughs> So he's teaching Carson how to steam a fish in a washing machine, which is like, who would think of that except for Vincent Price, you know? Well, no, that's a real thing. Really? Yeah. It's, okay, I didn't realize that was a thing. So I, I, this might sound really weird, but like I read cooking magazines and I don't know why I'm really into this, but... I mean, isn't a wall in your house dedicated to Vincent Price recipes? Yes. So, <laughs> so I, I totally yes. believe that like both you would know that and then that price himself would know that because he wrote multiple cookbooks yeah it's sort of the reason that you would cook something and you you have to seal it of course okay we don't actually need to go into the details of this okay it's one of those things (laughs) you heard the clip like he taught johnny carson carson how to make a fish in a washing machine that's like the kind of person vincent price was so i'm sure he could have done other things with his life yeah but he did this is the era where he becomes price the horror icon yeah, but I think one of my favorite things about him is that he just was always so good-natured and never resented that he was typecast, unlike somebody like Christopher Lee, who seemed to have a real chip on his shoulder about it. And again, as somebody who was a really talented, incredible actor who could do a lot more, but I think Vincent Price, it seemed like he just loved working and being around people. So one of the things that's interesting about his films and one of the reasons why I don't think he deserves a label of camp is that the way he approaches material, he always treats everything seriously. Even if it's a comedy, like he knows like the way you handle comedic material is different from the way you handle dramatic material. And he throws himself into everything he does and he's never above his material which i respect so much i mean even something like the dr goldfoot movies he's Mm -hmm. incredible in those and i i totally agree i think he treats everything like he doesn't ever phone a performance in no and one of the things that i think makes a a later movie like madhouse great is the fact that it relies on public perception of him as an actor and he's able to throw some um, nuance into the performance where he gets to throw more of himself into it as Dr. Death in that movie. And at least in Madhouse, he doesn't have to be blonde. Well, <laughs> there were so there are some unfortunate things about this movie, and that is the one, major one. 
Well, that and poor Mark Damon, who, so Mark Damon is also in, so, okay, if you're not familiar with Italian horror, the probably like 60 to 66, 67 is this huge wave of Italian Gothic films that comes out. Most of them are black and white. And Mark Damon is in a few of them. And Spaghetti he, Gothic? Would we use that label? That label makes me sad. I'm being an asshole. <laughs> because everyone calls anything from Italy spaghetti. I know. It's enraging. Or macaroni in the case of macaroni westerns. Which is such an American thing. Like this assumption that everyone over there is just eating spaghetti because you don't know the names of any other of or the that, hundreds of pasta dishes. Or that they're just ripping something else off. Which... To be fair, like later in the 70s and 80s, they oh, would do they that, sure but. were, but yeah, it just he he's sort of like this kind of bland leading man type that I think he does a good job at. I just hate the character type so much. I mean, even in Universal Horror, you had somebody like David Manners, who every time he comes on screen, it's like, please, Bella Lugosi, just kill david manners well they had to have the character the audience in that era would identify with they couldn't just unfortunately embrace you know the wonderfully deranged characters um, i mean they did in a way but they couldn't put them fo- at the forefront and i guess that's why we're not having a normal people podcast but we're having a goth podcast because normal we people are fucking weird they're the ones that really scare me and boring and boring which this movie is not it is slow, it is atmospheric, but it is not boring because you get a lot of awesome things, specifically Price's performance, which overshadows everybody else's. So you have a bland character like Winthrop. Madeline, she doesn't get a lot to do, and Bristol is the only other character in the movie. There are literally only four people in this movie. Yeah. So Price kind of like takes the show and steals it well, and I think he did that in every movie, but it's I- just more noticeable here because yeah. they're are so few actors present. I mean, something that we're going to have to talk about when we discuss Madhouse and when we discuss Abominable Dr. Fibes is the times where he would sort of like aggressively steal the movie. Like anytime he's on set with Robert Quarry, who he hated, (laughs) (laughs) but here it's like, they're just, although I do think another important character is the house. Well, yeah. So, This is probably a good way to wrap things up on this portion of the episode. Um, The idea of the physical space being connected to the humans, like the bodies and all three of them being like one one presence, is something that pops up in the later films as well. Like the haunting and the shining and Legend of Hell House, which is Matheson. Influential in that sense where it set the tone for later horror movies and we still see it today in some ways you still see the idea that like a place is evil influencing people doing making them do things so this isn't the first movie that did it it's just something that pushed it to the forefront yeah you have to wonder how matheson so matheson wrote legend of hell house which is amazing yeah pamela franklin shames a ghost over his sexual inadequacies yeah and pamela franklin I would have to argue is kind of goth. <laughs> she so she gonna, goes for it. I'll we're going to have to cover that at some point, but Roddy McDowell style icon in that movie. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of style happening in that movie, but and none of it works together. <laughs> I disagree. But <laughs> it was the seventies. I'll let the, I'll let it go. But you have to wonder how much he was influenced by 
House of Usher, not only reading Poe growing up, but right. writing this screenplay because it's the the physical space of the house has a very similar role as, as in that film. And it's something that follows through, like I said, to today. I mean, so many movies use that idea of a place as, you know, an evil entity. Um, the It movies, which just came out, that's kind of like Derry is tied to Pennywise and vice versa. So like it's something that pops up no matter what area you are in. And we still see it today, even when we are trying to, you know, say we are enlightened, progressive, you know, 2019 people. It's still something you see popping up to this day. Well, I think also in terms of genre cinema, it's just so foundational. Like like Horace Walpole's Castle of Entrano, that's sort of the main one of the main themes. Like so it's from the very first gothic novel on. Well, and it's more interesting than just like crazy dude with an axe did it. Yeah, and I think it gives it a sort of psychological resonance and it makes it about the family it makes it about identity i mean it also something that we'll have to find a way to talk about this at some point but a lot of people know poe but not as many people know some of the german gothic writers like eta hoffman who is amazing and i I highly recommend finding one of his collections like the sandman or something along those lines but he wrote a story that was thought to influence Poe that has a sort of similar plot structure. And so it just, you can never really get away from this idea of the house as a place of evil. No, and it works here and it works to this day because it's something people can always identify with. Even if it's just the very basic, you move into a new house and it seems creepy until you get to know the space. You project onto the space your own insecurities, neuroses, and things like that, which... Roderick certainly does in this movie because he has a lot of them. Just a few. This October, the Cinepunks podcast group invites you to our annual celebration of all things spooky. Cineween. From October 1st to 31st, Cinepunks.com is your home for Halloween scares, new writing, special podcast episodes, all to make you feel seasonally creepy. So that was House of Usher from 1960. Um, but now we are moving into the second portion of our show, which for our listeners will know that we go from goth movies into goth music. And to do that is a little difficult because there isn't goth music or there wasn't in 1960. Yeah, and I haven't gotten to say my favorite phrase yet. Which uh, is? Which is goth adjacent. Uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Deal with it. There's not even really much goth adjacent music in 1960. I mean, there's a ton of great jazz. Yeah, there's there's stuff like that. There's a ton of great jazz and blues and some folk music. But I mean, it's so like, 1960, we were still in like the throes of like late 50s rock and roll, like Elvis. Beverly Brothers and Elvis and stuff like that. So teenage tragedy songs you can make an argument for. 
Sure. But that's not what we decided to focus on. We decided to look at musical adaptations, references to Poe, because it was a little difficult to find stuff from 1960. Sure. Although I did just quickly want to mention that 1960 marked the release of Yana Sinakis's, uh in insane, insane composition called uh, Metastasis. Going and a little highbrow there. So I really love classical music. And 1960, there's actually a lot of goth-adjacent classical records that came out. But I feel like the the Zanakis is something that really, really went on to influence a lot of early industrial. Like there would be no Neubauten without it. It's if you've never heard it, you can find it online. We will play a clip here. It's insane. So going from classical into more classical. I mean, there will be some <laughs> classical references in here, but I meant more like pop culture oriented sure we decided to look um poe adaptations of any year and surprisingly this is also hard to find like there are people who reference or maybe make an illusion but a lot of them suck and none of them are very goth so you get a lot of like emo bands making references to poe yeah which, fuck also that. we're not playing emo on this show no we're not i would, I would even quit. first wave emo which no no and part of the problem with poe i think is that especially in terms of musically if you have any band who tries to sort of identify themselves with his image they wind up being like evanescence type bullshit where it's sort of mainstream goth for lack of a better phrase like bullshit that we don't want to listen to or talk about no totally um what was interesting was like sorting through references to poe and seeing which ones sucked which were multiple <laughs> there were multiple too many to name and then the ones that were interesting were actually good so the post story annabelle lee was probably it's probably his most adapted work yeah there are a number of musicians who have covered it from uh, marissa nadler in 2004 she's wonderful yeah she's amazing um but then also stevie nicks did it in 2011 which that version isn't particularly good i wouldn't recommend it even if you are a stevie nicks fan uh but my favorite was actually joan baez who did it in the late 60s, and her version is kind of proto-Gothy. Yeah, and 1960 is, I think, her solo or self-titled album came out. So I think she's somebody who you could make a case that her type of kind of melancholic folk music 
I mean, Shirley Collins also came out with an album that year. And I think they yeah. both really went on to influence goth music in a maybe more distant way. No, totally. Uh, the only goth band I actually found that made any reference to Poe was in the 2000s. And it was a neoclassical act. Um, Nox Arcana released an album, Shadow of the Raven, which is all, well, <laughs> sounds really cheesy. Shadow of the Raven. Um, there's no lyrics on it. And they... All of the song titles are references to Poe, so Annabelle Lee is on there. The first six songs all reference Usher. Um, so it's interesting to see an actual goth band reference it in a way that isn't tacky. But my favorite of all of these, and a legitimately good album, not goth, goth adjacent, so I'm going to have to use it's that unfortunate totally phrase, goth adjacent. is the Alan Parsons Project. Yeah, it's so good. Their first album, oddly enough, was an adaptation of like Poe Concepts. Uh, they took a title from various Poe compilation stories, uh, mm -hmm. which is Tales of Mystery and Imagination, and multiple songs on that album. I mean, all of the songs on that album are all references to Poe, um, specifically the last song, which is A Sweet. Yeah, it's dedicated like a to full Usher. cycle. And they, the prelude references the Debussy, so Debussy um, opera which is odd which for we'll any rock band yeah. that you would think to do that. But it's Alan Parsons. Well, it's Alan Parsons. And that song is wonderful, but my favorite song is actually the final song on the album, which is an original composition that's done in reference to Poe or in the style of Poe. It's not necessarily like about anything Poe wrote. In the key of Poe? In the key of Poe. <laughs> That was my pick for goth record or goth adjacent record. Mm -hmm. What about you? Oh, mine is it's classical music, isn't it? Yes. You nerd. <laughs> uh, so Debussy, who I love so very much, as you mentioned, did at least started an opera based on House of Usher called La Chute de la Maison Usher, which is also... It's just really, I mean, musicians have come along and tried to complete it. 
So you can hear almost the full version. I mean, it's available everywhere. YouTube, Spotify. Many different adaptations on YouTube if you go on. Yeah. And basically, it just really gorgeously, I think, captures the tone of the story. And Debussy was wonderful and melancholic and really, really atmospheric. Um, I strongly recommend him if you for some reason decide that you want to get into classical music and you want it to be goth adjacent this is to start it's a great place to start and it's also as we mentioned the french really loved poe and the french are a dark people yeah and took him very seriously before americans did and it's all that creepy sex shit Oh, it must be. And (laughs) (laughs) so around the time he was composing this in like basically between 1910 and 1920, around there, um, I think it's something that really caught on in French culture. I mean, Baudelaire was the first person to translate Poe and to write about his importance. And so I think in sort of fin de siècle French art, he's somebody who pops up a lot i mean a couple years after that maybe like 10 years after debussy works on this opera uh there's a french silent film that also adapts the story that is wonderful and it's great we'll have to talk about it at some point i, I mean, think the last time i saw that um for anyone who's been to philadelphia i believe there was a screening at the motor museum yep last year which was wonderful with a live See, score with a, i was about to say it was wonderful seeing that performed live yeah, so, I mean, really, the French, they, they know what's up. So was that your pick, Debussy? Oh, totally. So we're not going to get into Philip Glass or anyone like that? Well, so, I mean, there is also a Philip Glass interpretation. I guess i got to make a highbrow reference, too, as opposed to, you know, talking about prog rock. Yeah, I mean, my list of things to talk about, it's basically all Gustav Mahler recordings from 1960, which don't have anything to do with Poe. Throw out as many weird references as you want. We have time. (laughs) It's our podcast. That's true. Well, so Philip Glass, like, I like a lot of Philip Glass stuff, but in terms of Usher interpretations, I just think Debussy is the clear winner in, in that particular arm wrestling contest. Completely fair. But yeah, okay. So I, you know what, I do want to talk about Mahler. So okay. there, there <laughs> is some, there is some great. So if you listen to classical music at all, you know that it works a little bit differently than popular music. Or that's a bit of an understatement. Pop, yeah. Well, so basically, you don't just look for okay, I like this composer. You often look Skill, for virtuosity, things like that. Well, in terms of actually listening to the music you usually find a favorite composer or a favorite orchestra and so there are weirdly a lot of Mahler releases that came out in 1960 that are considered like some of the definitive ones in particular there's this one German uh, conductor I really love named Fritz Reiner and he released a version of the Song of the Earth with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and If you've never listened to Mahler and you want something really gloomy and oppressive to put on, Mahler was a total crazy person. He is somebody who probably could be in his own Poe story and was going through this really awful time in his life when he wrote uh, Song of the Earth. And if you read a translation of the lyrics or 
if you speak German and you read the lyrics in German, the book is just so dismal and oppressive and it's it's very goth. I feel like the theme today has been gloomy. It's been a gloomy Sunday. Sure. And I mean, there's plenty of stuff I think that falls under that umbrella. I mean, there's more Mahler. There's also stuff like Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which got another like major... Listen, I'm a goddamn Philistine. Well, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring is something that is probably the most terrifying piece of cla- of popular classical music ever recorded. True. And uh, the Philharmonia Orchestra released their version uh, that year with Igor Markovich. And it's, I mean, it's the sort of thing where if you put it on when you're driving in a storm, it's frightening. Or you should just roll down the street with your windows down and Stravinsky blasting blaring. Stravinsky. I would love to see that. Just well, to see the reactions on people's faces. Well, now it's on my to-do list. You're going to get all of the fly honeys. <laughs> okay, so we have one thing left to do. That was the music portion, but now we need to determine if this movie is goth or not. So, Sam, what are the rules? Rule number one, embrace the darkness. This movie is very dark. Uh, yeah, and they're, Roderick is determined that they go down in the house they go to down together. stamp out generations of evil. Yes, and so they certainly embrace the darkness. We forgot to mention the part where he takes <laughs> he takes him on a tour of the family portraits and talks oh, about how yes. all of the different family members are evil. <laughs> but the portraits themselves are very disturbing, too. They I are. I forget who the artist is, but they're actually like, genuinely terrifying yeah that i mean the set design we've already said it's just okay, the so best rule two kill your fear i don't think this one applies they're consumed by their fears yes okay well well we'll move rule, on to number three rule number three live for death uh, they spend all their time in that fucking house thinking about how they're gonna die madeline takes true. him as as she part sleeps of their, in a crypt. Yes, she sleeps in a crypt, and as part of their like romantic afternoon, she takes him down and shows him all the family tombs, and then shows him the <laughs> one meant for her and Roderick. His reaction is great because he's like, he, I, "I can't believe Roderick did this to you," and she's like, "She's like, oh no." <laughs> she's like, "She's like, no, no. This is this is what I want. This is cool." Yeah. And I think he starts to realize, like, "Wait, maybe you're fucked she's up like, too, lady. You're crazy. I need to get the <laughs> fuck out of here." So, okay, they definitely live for death. I think it qualifies as a goth movie. I mean, the velvet dressing gown alone. I will agree. And sleeping in a crypt, it's Even a goth it movie. Even didn't pass rule two, they didn't kill their fears. I mean, they killed themselves. Yeah. Roderick killed Madeline, and then Madeline came back from the dead to kill him, so. And that is a pretty fucked up way to kill someone. It's Coming back from the dead to kill somebody? No, no. It's so much worse than oh, just yeah. strangling Being someone to death alive. is to provoke an argument with them so they pass out and then while they're passed out bury them alive he gaslit her to death that is some shit that's that's quite (laughs) the way to send your sister out especially the sister that you're madly dearly in love with and doing all kinds of dirty disgusting things with on the side yeah and that's how we're gonna end this episode so Look forward to our next episode, which is going to be Dr. Fibes, the both Fibes films. So it's what? Fibes and Fibes Rises from the Grave? Fibes Rises Again. Rises Again. Okay. 
I haven't seen the second one in a long time, so this is going to be fun. Get ready for Robert Quarry. Apparently, Vincent Price isn't fa- a fan of him. <laughs> 